Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 362 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Moonwalk 1, Part 2. As soon as John finished his speech, it was Charlie's turn. He quickly climbed out the hatch, down the ladder, and jumped onto the ground. Charlie's first words weren't very poetic, but he was really excited. He thought to himself, Just imagine, since the beginning of time, no human being has ever walked in this spot before. To Charlie, he could have been the 10,000th on the moon instead of the 10th, and it wouldn't have mattered. He was overjoyed at being there. He really didn't go to the moon to make the history books. He went for the thrill of adventure and the desire to explore. Charlie felt no fear on the moon. In spite of the hostile environment, he felt like they belonged, not like aliens in a foreign land. Everything was familiar to them. They recognized major landmarks and were comfortable in their spacesuits. Plus, communications with Houston was improving. Though Charlie wasn't afraid, he was now in a very hostile environment and completely dependent on the integrity of his spacesuit and the oxygen supply in his life support system. A hole or tear in the suit, only the size of a nickel, would be a disaster, resulting in almost instant death. The lack of atmosphere also allowed all solar radiation and heat to reach the lunar surface. When they landed, the sun was 15 degrees above the eastern horizon and the temperature was 85 degrees Fahrenheit. On the moon, the temperature varies with the elevation of the sun above the surface, so 
Three days later, when the sun would be 55 degrees above the horizon, the temperature would rise to almost 235 degrees Fahrenheit. Fortunately, the suit was designed to protect the astronauts from this heat and radiation. To John Young, it wasn't that strange of a sensation walking around on the moon. On Earth, his suit and backpack weighed 194 pounds, but in the moon's one-sixth gravity, his body and the weight it carried felt absolutely normal and manageable. In fact, the Earth was so close to the simulated operational environment that NASA had created for astronaut training that John recommended after the flight that the familiarization period for lunar surface operations be deleted from the timeline. But for this mission, Charlie and John used that familiarization period to closely inspect under Orion. Oh, look at Atlantis. You always got a big rock with a, about a 50-centimeter rock with a right leg, the left leg, Charlie. Charlie and John were startled by their landing spot. Much of the landing area was covered with rocks or had a steep slope. Fortunately, they had managed to land on the only level and smooth spot around. They observed that the number four landing strut and the descent engine bell had both ended up fairly close to small boulders. The landing gear struts had not stroked meaning they had not flexed or moved noticeably back, forth, or sideways. But what really got their attention was the lunar module's rear foot pad rested no more than three meters from the rim of the crater that John had overflown during the final seconds of the landing. It was a crater that was some five meters deep, so it was really good that they had avoided landing in it in any way. In less than 10 minutes, they completed their inspection and had their Swing Action Modular Equipment Storage Assembly, or MESA, adjusted to a comfortable height. The MESA, which folded up against the side of the spacecraft to the left side of the ladder, contained tools, equipment, food packages, spare batteries, and other gear. It hinged at the bottom, and when John pulled on the lanyard to release it, the mesa swung down about 120 degrees to a good working height. Next came deployment of the rover. It was critical to have the rover as there was a good distance to travel to the best geological sites. When John inspected the vehicle and saw that nothing had prematurely deployed, neither its wheels nor its chassis sections, he breathed a sigh of relief and said to himself a hearty, Thank God. Pulling out real mounted tapes on the left and the right, Charlie and John deployed the rover, and it rotated out and away from the lunar module. Rotating about 45 degrees, the aft chassis section, which was folded over the middle chassis section, then sprang into place. The wheels popped open just as they had done in training, but not all of them locked into place. There was a gold sleeve collar arrangement that had 
a couple of pins in it so that when the wheels were fully out, those pins locked in to hold the wheels in place. That was not locked. But all they had to do to fix it was push on the wheel to extend that mechanism and it locked right into place. Using his contingency tool, John also secured two hinge pins that held the chassis in locked position. Just as happened on Apollo 15, they found that the walking hinges on the outside of the lunar module supporting the bottom of the rover package had released, likely as a result of getting jarred during landing, but it was easily enough fixed. Compared with Apollo 15, Apollo 16's lunar rover deployment went very smoothly and quickly. Of course, they had learned a lot from Apollo 15, and thanks to having trained as the backup crew for Apollo 13, John and Charlie were able to spend about 40% of their time training for surface operations. John got on his side, and Charlie got on his side, and they just picked up the rover and carried it away from the lunar module. The rover only weighed 80 pounds in one-sixth gravity. The astronauts felt like Superman carrying their vehicle. In fact, even though the rover had reverse gear, it didn't have a rear-view mirror. Therefore, they never used reverse but instead preferred picking the car up to turn it around. While John began to check out and power up the lunar rover, Charlie unstowed their experiments, the flag, rock boxes, and other things necessary for the EVA. Then he retrieved one of the cameras, and while standing in place and rotating, took a panorama shot, which was a series of pictures covering 360 degrees. At each stop on their subsequent excursion, Houston would have them take one of these panoramas. As Charlie was taking these pictures, John got the rover running. Ah, this is going to be some kind of different ride, he exclaimed. Unfortunately, John experienced a problem with the rear steering. It wasn't working, and they couldn't figure out why. This was really concerning because if it wasn't repaired, their EVAs would possibly be curtailed, so they asked Houston to see what they could come up with. 
Charlie then proceeded to mount the TV and the 16-millimeter cameras on the rover. These cameras were to be carried on the rover for all their EVAs, allowing Houston to view everything. To operate the TV, all they had to do was plug it in, turn on the power switch, then point the antenna, which was about the size of an umbrella, toward the earth directly overhead. While Charlie was doing all this, John started setting up their first experiment. It was a far UV camera which operated in the ultraviolet spectrum and would be like a lunar observatory. Things were going well, moving right along their timeline. All the practice was paying off. Now, Charlie had the TV camera mounted. Hey, Charlie, verify the TV power switch is on. Stand by. On the TCU. Okay, I'll hit it on. Okay, momentary on. Back to center. Okay. Hey, we've got a picture. Yay! Of the ground, no doubt. Of the ground. That's it. Yeah. That's nice looking ground. Okay, the camera is running. The 16 millimeter is running. Outstanding. Outstanding. Okay, get the other deck out. That's mission four first. Hey, you're looking at me with the big eye. All right, the big eye's on you, Charlie. The TV was operated from Mission Control by Ed Findale. Ed could pan the camera side to side, tilt it up and down, zoom in and out, and even change the light setting. The 16mm camera was working perfectly too, which was unusual because it had been problematic on all the previous missions. The astronauts needed the movie camera for their traverse across the lunar surface when the TV wasn't operating. Now it was time to put up the flag. This was a ritual on every Apollo moon flight, setting up an American flag on the lunar surface and having each of the crew's picture taken saluting the flag. Charlie grabbed the Hasselblad to get John's picture. John, this is perfect with the limb and the rover and you and, and uh, Stone Mountain and the old flag. Come on out here and give me a salute. Big Navy salute. Look at this. That's a pretty outstanding picture here, I tell you. Come on, a little bit closer. Okay, here we go, a big one. Off the ground, one more. There we go. 
I'd like to see an Air Force salute, Charlie, but I don't think they salute the Air Force. Sure, we do. <laughs> Just fly high and straight and land soft. Okay, Charlie, say when. Here we go. Good again. One for you. Okay, this looks, like, more. This looks like a good okay. time for some good news here. The House Got passed a uh, space budget yesterday, 277 to 60, which includes a vote for the shuttle. Uh, Again, I'll say it with absolute, I'm proud to be an American. I'll tell you, what a program, and what a place, and what an experience. And I'll say it too. So my country needs that shuttle mighty bad. You'll see. John and Charlie were delighted about the shuttle funding. This meant that the space program was going to continue into the next phase. Reusable, multi-mission spacecraft. More like an airliner. They hoped this would be a step toward having an orbital space station and possibly a moon base in the not-so-distant future. The next thing to deploy was the ALSEP, the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package. Containing all of the major scientific experiments except geology, which would be conducted by the astronauts. ALSEP was to be powered by a little RTG, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. The fuel element of the generator was stowed separately on the lunar module descent stage and had to be removed by a special tool and placed inside the ALSEP. This was a critical maneuver because it had a very high temperature and if it accidentally touched Charlie's suit or gloves, it would burn a hole which would cause a decompression. Charlie carefully pulled the fuel element out of its stowage area and walked over to place it into the RTG, making sure he didn't stumble over any rocks. Charlie was relieved when he was able to report to Houston, the RTG is fueled. By this time, the astronauts had worked up a good sweat and were tired and thirsty, so they paused for a drink. They carried about a gallon of water in their drink bags inside their spacesuits, and it really tasted great. They had originally planned on having orange juice, but decided they did not want to risk having sticky orange juice floating around inside their helmets. Now, they had to carry the RTG package and experiments package about 100 yards from the lunar module to the selected place of deployment. Charlie attached each package to the ends of an aluminum tube, making the whole assembly look like a clumsy dumbbell cradled in his arms, and then he began to jog out. However, he had gone only about 20 yards when the RTG package fell off and bounced on the ground. Charlie's heart sank. He thought, oh no, I've destroyed the power source and the experiments. He didn't say anything to Houston, hoping they hadn't seen his embarrassing stunt. But when he looked over his shoulder, the camera was pointed right at him. Fortunately for Charlie, everything was intact, just a little dusty. As he moved closer to the deployment area, 
Charlie noticed the dust getting deeper and deeper. Now his footprints were about two to three inches deep. The dust was sticking to his suit, and even though the surface of the moon was gray, his suit began to turn black. For emplacement of the Alsep experiments, the scientists said they needed a fairly level spot. Charlie found a place over a nearby ridge. It was not as flat as he would have liked, but it was the most level spot he could find. It was difficult to find any decent place because of the enormous amount of rocks, craters, and ridges. While Charlie worked on the ALSEP, John drove the rover out to the emplacement site for Houston to watch them do the experiments on TV. To this day, no one knows what happened, but when John began driving, the rear steering started working. Of course, the astronauts were elated. According to mission rules, they needed both steering systems to complete their traverses. John turned on the TV and pointed the antenna toward the Earth. The Earth was directly overhead. Though the Earth is four times larger than the moon, it really didn't look four times as large from the surface of the moon. It wasn't a huge Earth hanging over their heads. In fact, it was close to what the moon looks like from Earth, only blue and white. At this time, it was a half-Earth. On Earth, looking at them, you would have seen a half-moon. The phases of the Earth and the moon are completely opposite, so during a full moon, the astronauts would experience a new Earth, and vice versa. There were five major experiments on the ALSEP. John was responsible for deploying four of them, and Charlie was responsible for one the heat flow experiment. The heat flow experiment required drilling two holes 10 feet deep into the surface of the moon with a small battery-operated handheld drill, then placing an electrical probe inside the holes to measure the heat that was escaping from the deep inner core of the moon. You may recall Apollo 15 had experienced a terrible time drilling into the lunar surface because of a bad design of the drill stems. Apollo 16 had redesigned drill stems, hopefully to make drilling much easier. Look at that beauty go! Look at that beauty stop! Look at that beauty go again! Okay, give it time to clean the flute. I'm not leaning on it. It may appear that I am leaning on it, Tony, but I guarantee you I am not. Okay, we understand. Hey, it's run into something hard down there. I can feel the torque, or whatever it is that's going through it. Yep, it was through it. It's probably some, just some rocks down there in the regolith, Tony. The drill would start out great, then hit a rock or something and come to a complete stop and then get going again. Charlie kept at it, and slowly but surely, it got down 10 feet. Things looked good for a very successful experiment. Charlie had drilled the first heat flow hole and had begun on the second one 
when he heard John call out. Charlie, what? Something happened here. What happened? I don't know. Here's a line that pulled loose. Charlie couldn't believe it. John had actually ripped the electrical power cord to his heat flow experiment, making it worthless. The cord had gotten around his foot, and since it was impossible to look down and see your feet in the bulky spacesuits, John had broken the wire right off at the connector when he walked away. John and Charlie were devastated. They had trained so hard to make this experiment work, and here, before the probe even got turned on, the power had been disrupted. Houston said they would look into a way to fix it, and they tried to raise the astronaut's spirits. But in the end, they had to move on to another task. For the next 48 hours, NASA worked on ways to fix it. Later, Mission Control informed the astronauts it could be done. But since it would take two to three hours to fix and was a risky procedure, they all agreed they should not try it and sacrifice the time. This was the biggest disappointment of the entire flight. The heat flow had been one of their major experiments, and everyone was sorry to lose it. In the technical debrief following the mission, John Young said, Quote, this kind of thing was almost unavoidable. With the cables way up off the ground, you never knew whether you were stepping on them or not. When you're standing in one-sixth gravity with a backpack on, you're looking about three to four inches in front of your toes, unless you're making a real positive effort to look over them. Every one of those cables was at some distance off the surface. A guy really couldn't lift his feet too high around the central station because when he did, he kicked dirt all over everything. Maybe the cabling and connectors to the equipment and instruments should be such that they can stand a tangle and trip. That cable evidently was really flimsy. 
Some cables were very strong and allowed you to do it. But that heat flow didn't. I didn't know I'd done it. End quote. Young took it hard. He felt as though he achieved another space first. The cable incident was the first to knock out a lunar surface experiment. The press coverage of his accident was unkind. It was almost as bad as it was when he brought the corned beef sandwich onto Gemini 3. One reporter with the Washington Post wrote, quote, What we have been watching up there is not science. Those two klutzes up there on the moon bumping into each other, unable to repair what their clumsiness has damaged, didn't look like scientists or lab technicians even. They looked like a couple of miscast Wahoo military officers. End quote. Obviously, that reporter had an axe to grind. Young's own analysis of the accident came back to the integrity of the simulations. It became clear to him, once again, that when you fail in the simulations, you either need to fix the simulation or correct the situation. Because if you can't do it right in training, you won't get it done correctly in the real world, especially not on the moon. In the case of the cables, they would not lie flat. Every one of the lunar missions would encounter similar problems. Back on the moon, John deployed his remaining experiments without incident, a magnetometer for measuring the magnetic field and a spectrometer to sample gases escaping from the lunar surface. Charlie began the task of collecting core samples, this required drilling another hole 10 foot deep, but this time the drill bit was hollow, enabling the stem to fill with lunar material. Then, with a special tool, much like a large car jack, the stem and core sample were jacked out, disassembled, and the soil brought back for analysis. This would give scientists a vertical cross-section of the subsurface. After much hard work retrieving the core, Houston asked Charlie to measure the depth of the hole with an instrument they called a rammer-jammer. This was a long rod, similar to the rods used to ram powder in Revolutionary War muskets. Charlie was sure that the hole had collapsed, but when he pulled out the core and dropped the rammer jammer in, it disappeared, dropping all the way to the bottom. The lunar soil was so compacted it had not collapsed. Lunar soil is not like the soil here on Earth. It is actually pulverized rock, not dirt, because there was never any organic life on the moon. The powdered rock has resulted from meteor impacts and the extreme temperature variations, which causes the rocks to expand and contract and crumble. The top layer of dust is very fine grain, like talcum powder, and varies from a fraction of an inch to several feet deep, depending on the location. 
Beneath the dust layer is a coarser, loose-grained material. The moon's soil was discovered to contain the same minerals we have here on Earth, nothing exotic. It was very rich in these minerals, and when NASA argonomists cultivated seed under controlled conditions in the moon dust, the plants grew between two and five times faster than in Earth's soil. The last experiment in the ALSEP required both astronauts to deploy. It was the active seismic experiment to measure moonquakes and consisted of a series of listening devices called geophones, which were attached to a cable 100 meters long. The rover itself was important to setting up the active seismic experiment. An astronaut trying to walk off a straight path for the geophone cables would have had real trouble keeping it straight in the rolling terrain, but the rover steered on a steady heading and laid down tire tracks that were easy to follow. John chose a 100-meter-long traverse route headed 290 degrees from the lunar module. Down that line, they placed thumpers every 15 feet. The thumpers were sort of a small pneumatic road hammer driven by shotgun charges. Walking along the geophone line, they were to fire off these shotgun charges one at a time. Okay, Charlie, hold still. I'm still. Hey, John, we got an outstanding signal here. It looks great. I'm traveling too good in the vacuum over here, I think. But it jumped. Four, three, two, one, fire. It's firing, babe, I'll tell you. Bet. Get me all dirty. Great. Uh, not great, just getting you dirty. Great, it's working. Even though Charlie couldn't hear the charges in the vacuum... Their firing of the thumpers for the seismic experiment was pretty much successful, except for one attempt that failed. Now Houston wanted pictures of all the experiments in the ALSEP area, so Charlie ran to get the camera. On a footprint to the moon. Ain't believe it. Oh, that's all right. They'll probably road away in about four billion years. John and Charlie were now having a great time, talking nonstop and joking back and forth, almost like Laurel and Hardy. It seemed like a regular training session when Capcom Tony England joined in. They had been out on the surface for about four hours now and had completed the ALSEP experiments and picture-taking. Now it was time to configure for their geology. Salutations from my mother-in-law's backyard. 
This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 362 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16, Moonwalk 1, Part 2. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on April 29th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 187 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, had some afterthoughts for this episode. First of all, didn't that rover unload very quickly this time? So much easier than Apollo 15. Of course, they learned a lot from 15 to improve 16. But that really was impressive. It came right down. I did find it odd that these steering problems that they have seem to correct themselves. You remember they had a problem on 15 with the steering that got better overnight. Isn't it strange that on 16, as they drove it, it just suddenly got better? That just seems odd to me. Anyway, I really love Charlie's enthusiasm. You hear it in his voice so well. But with great enthusiasm comes great disappointment. And John breaking the core temperature experiment was a great disappointment. But to Charlie's credit, he got over it and went on with the mission. But what else could he do? There was just a limited amount of time and you have to pretty much take advantage of every moment while you're on the moon. Well, to me, it is obvious from the past missions, and Apollo 16 especially, they need a more robust cable system and connectors. The astronauts were tripping on them every mission and during the simulations. I know NASA could have done a better job with the reinforcing of the cables. NASA knows how to make things more robust. Trust me, they know how to do that. John felt really bad about accidentally kicking the cable, and it had also happened, like I said, during the simulations. Yet nothing was done about it. I guess they pushed their luck too many times and lost that very important experiment they wanted to have. And the drill worked so great this time, too. It's just a shame that they lost that experiment. Of course, the media likes to pile on when something bad happens. That Washington Post reporter obviously had an agenda against the Apollo program and wasting money on space exploration when it could be better spent back here on Earth. Now, folks, that was the big argument when I was a kid that I heard over and over. My parents had friends we would often visit that preached that argument just about every time we saw them. Thank goodness my parents did not feel that way. 
I even had an uncle who I thought of as a second father. I loved that man. But he even questioned the validity of the moon landings, which I thought that was unbelievable. And so did my, so did my dad. He thought so too. Anyway, the point is, it was a very divided time during Apollo, especially as the missions progressed. As the former NASA administrator said, NASA's budget is based on the whims of politicians. And for the moon missions, it was almost over. Thank goodness we got the, uh, at least some good news that the shuttle was funded. And finally, for those interested in the farm project, please skip over the next two minutes if you're not. <laughs> As you heard, we are still in my mother-in-law's backyard living in the camper. The old broken-down mobile home I was telling you about last week that's located on the farm is still blocking the place I need to put the camper. I have had more people stop by as they see us out there working. They'll stop by and ask about taking that mobile home off my hands because <laughs> they want it. Of course, they didn't see the inside of it. But <laughs> I'm still holding it for the surveyor who we promised it to way back in February. We did make some progress in getting the lot for the house surveyed out from the rest of the farm. You see, it's a good idea to cut out your house lot from the rest of the farm so you, when you take a loan, the bank doesn't have control over the whole farm. They just have it over the area that your house is located on. So we cut out about a, I think it come out to 1.7 acres for the house lot there. So uh, that has at least been done. And I have been gathering items that I need to hook up my temporary power to the camper. So we are crawling along, getting closer. Well, we must be getting closer. Time's passing. We've got to be getting closer. So <laughs> it's not a lot of progress. Now the builder who is building the house, and I ask him how long is it going to take? Obviously, we want to know that because we don't want to spend the rest of our life in the camper, although it's a nice camper, and we've no complaints. But uh, he said it was going to take about a year to finish our new house, and that was due to material shortage because of COVID. And... Uh, they are not even able to start the house until July. So that was a bit disappointing. For reference, it took about six months to build our first house. Now that was way back in 86 and 87. So times were different then. And houses were cheaper too, by the way. A lot cheaper. So we're getting very comfortable with the camper, hoping nothing is going to go wrong with it. My mother-in-law has been so nice to us, and she says she enjoys our company. 
Now, although my sister-in-law and wife visit her very often, she still gets lonely and enjoys the comfort of us being so close if she needs anything. So us being here is not a problem for her at all. I just have an independent nature and want to be at my own place. So that is where we are. I will keep those interested updated next time. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had a few contributions and increases, and I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the Voyager level. Peter H. from France donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Pete P. from Georgia donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Cole P. from Michigan donated at the Apollo level. And Matthew T. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors are at 256. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 328. And our goal is 500 by the end of 2021, which has been our goal for the past two or three years. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. As Mike has been filling you in on our personal project, let me add something to the mix. With all the ebb and flow of the business decisions, the part that helps me keep perspective is the time I'm getting to spend with my mom and working at the farm with the family. There seems to always be new challenges, but there's fun too, in the simplest of things, like the grandchildren, and I caught one of the children too, swinging on a vine from a tree or being pulled behind a tractor. Just simple fun. That's what I've been enjoying. Now, back to the SRH business. The drawing and the winner. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two of the holographic stickers, or the rare but beautiful SRH archive magnet. And, don't forget, a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Martin Collins. Martin Collins, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, Tell us your address and your SRH prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 328 of you who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, the Apollo 16 Mission Report, the Apollo 16 Timeline, the Apollo 16 Lunar Surface Journal, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 363 posted by April 29th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.